I read about a poll that Business Week did some time ago in, where they, in which they asked people to list the modern inventions that they could not live without. In other words, needs an invention that was so basic that you could not live without it. it had some pretty interesting results. 63% uh, of us could not live without an automobile. 54%, about half of us, couldn't live without a light bulb. 42% without a telephone. 22% without a TV. TV, uh, those are just the 22% who were honest, probably. 19% couldn't live without a microwave and a hairdryer. 7% of Americans could not live, they say, without a hairdryer. What are your needs? What are the things, if I were to say, what are your needs, what would you say? Well, in this context, we're likely to get real spiritual, but think about the context that you might say if somebody were to come up and ask you, okay? If Ed McMahon were to ask you, what are your needs? Would your answer be different if I were to come up and ask you, what are your needs? Alan Alda said simply, it isn't necessary to be rich and famous to be happy. It's only necessary to be rich. I guess you can say that if you're rich, right? The old scholar Erasmus had a different perspective. And I have this quote on my bookshelf. It says, when I get a little money, I buy books. And if any is left, I buy food and clothes. Different perspectives on what we need. Kathy will call me and she'll say, Honey, bring home some milk. Stop by the store because we need milk. Do we really need milk? I mean, do we need it? We use that word so flippantly sometimes. Well, I need a vacation. Well, what do you mean when you say that? You need a vacation. Well, what you're saying is, I'm really tired. I could use a break from my job or from whatever. I, I need something. Uh, I need a drink of water. Well, that puts it on a different level. If you were to ask me what I need, I would tell you, particularly around Christmas time, I need a stationary joiner. And those of you who have no idea what that is don't know to laugh. It's power tools. You, you got Christmas power tools. You know, make the correlation, Christmas power tools. Well, I asked Brian Collins, what do you need? And he says, well, I need an iPod. And then I needed him to explain what that was. It's some kind of a MP3 player you can listen to while you're jogging. But you ask different people what their needs are, and you're going to get different answers. Barna Research reported that 40% of us Americans list finances as our top felt need. The thing that we feel we need the most, more of, finances. But the problem is, I think a lot of times we don't feel our deepest needs. We can tell you what our felt needs are, but our deepest needs, our true needs, often we don't feel, and so we don't know. Vance Havner once said that faith in God will not get you everything you may want, but it will get you what God wants you to have. 
The unbeliever does not need what he wants. The Christian should want only what he needs. We're going to continue today, as David mentioned, our series called Giants in the Land, where we look at weaning ourselves from needing people and growing in our need of God, or biblically talking about growing in the fear of God and lessening in the fear of people, about needing people less and loving them more, about needing God more, or at least recognizing it. A couple weeks ago, if you were with us, we talked about the curse of self-esteem, the whole idea of what do we do with the shame that, God's, uh, that we have. And the, the shame simply is taken away when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Because what happens, where does shame come from, but from sin that we do, or sin that's done to us? And the world's solution is very simply, well, to get rid of your shame, you need to boost your self-esteem. Or to get rid of your low self-esteem, you need to have a better self-esteem. And you do that through financial accomplishment, through vocational success, through athletic accomplishment. Anything to try to make you feel better about yourself, to try to get rid of this nasty little bit of your past that you have called shame. The truth is you can never get rid of that shame. You can only try to mask it with all that the world says, oh, you're wonderful. But the Bible says that the way you get rid of, sin, of, of shame is to get rid of sin. And sin, the problem of sin, was dealt with when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. And there's no need for us to feel shame if our sins have been forgiven, if we placed our faith in Jesus. And last week, we looked at the fact that while we may have placed our faith in Jesus, while we're trusting Christ for eternity... While we know that God loves us, we, we still sometimes struggle, as did many of the greats in the Old Testament or in the Bible, we still sometimes struggle with fearing people. We know that God loves us, but somehow we need people to love us too. We need people to make us feel good about ourselves. And really it all comes back to the whole self-esteem thing. And so this idea of needing people is what I'd like for us to talk about today. The whole idea of what our needs really are. Do we need people? Well, we do, biblically, but not in the way we think often. What do you really need? Well, let's look together at Matthew chapter 6. If you brought your Bible, turn with me. If you didn't bring it and you have one, bring it. And if you don't have one, we've got one that you can have in the lobby. Depending on your need, you can buy, borrow, or just take it. Because we want you to have a copy of the scriptures for yourself. Not just to follow along on Sundays and maybe scribble some notes down, but also in your daily time with God to be able to listen to how the Lord would direct you for that day through reading the scriptures. The Bible shows us our true needs. And we find them in a most unlikely place in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, a lot of times when you hear Matthew 6, those of you perhaps who have been in church for some time, you, you think of Matthew 6 and you think of what? You think of, well, don't worry about tomorrow, right? Jesus' whole idea of don't be anxious about things. And that might have been a pretty good place as well to go to look to what our true needs are. But really all Jesus is doing at the end of Matthew 6 when he says don't be anxious about tomorrow is elaborating on what he said earlier in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. If you look at Matthew 6, verse uh, 9 is where we'll start, and that's on the screen. 
But for those of you who brought your Bible, look at verse 8 real quick, and I'll read it. Jesus says, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so Jesus is telling us up front that this whole prayer that is called the Lord's Prayer is not just a pattern of how we are to pray, though it is, but it also is a prayer that outlines essentially what our true needs are. Your Father knows what you need, even before you pray. And then he says, pray then in this way. So the prayer that he's teaching is a prayer that not only gives us kind of a... uh, a pattern, pray for these items, okay, maybe in this order. It's not that he's telling us just, okay, memorize this prayer and then see how fast you can say it and how many times you can say it real fast. Growing up, maybe uh, as a Catholic, maybe you did this. I know growing up as a Protestant, we did this. Every single Sunday, we would say the Lord's Prayer, and it got to where you'd memorize it, but it was almost like a mantra in some sense that you don't really... You couldn't really follow what it meant. It was just words. So as we read through it, try to listen as if for the first time. Because what Jesus is teaching us here, honestly, is something that we can apply every single day in our lives. Coming off of verse 8, we're going to start right in verse 9, knowing that this is uh, a prayer that is a needs-based prayer. He says, verse 9, Pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kind of hard even to read that, isn't it? It's become so familiar that it's difficult for us to catch the sense of what Jesus is saying. Notice three things. Thy name, thy kingdom... Thy will. The name of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God. Interesting, in a prayer that Jesus says that the Lord knows what you need even before you pray it, now here's how I want you to pray. Focus, first of all, on the kingdom of God, on the name of God, and on the will of God. In other words, if you are praying this prayer with sincerity, not just in dry, rote repetition, but if you are praying this prayer in sincerity, You are praising the name of God, the name representing him. You are praising God, hallowed, meaning sacred, praising him. You're praising the name of God. You are asking God for his kingdom to come, that his physical presence on this earth would be. And as the, the reading was done, talked about how the Lord Jesus is going to have the government on his shoulders. That's the kingdom that's talked about here. There's going to be a time when Jesus Christ comes that all of the world will will be ruled finally in righteousness. The government will be on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be great? Well, it will happen. And then finally, thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we want done down here as it's done up there. And so as you pray, our focus is to first be on the interests of God, not so much on our own selfish interests, but on God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And then, almost without any kind of a transition, he goes into verse 11. 
Look at that. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. Now he moves into the needs section of the prayer. And we have physical needs. He talks here about daily bread. You may get paid every month. You may get paid uh, twice a month, every two weeks, every week. I don't know, but still your perspective is to be a daily dependence on God. It's not to be a monthly dependence. Okay, we're set for the month now because we got paid. But it is a daily dependence. You know, there could be something that could happen to every single one of us. We walk out today and some unforeseen circumstance just totally wipes us out financially. And then this prayer would have much more meaning for us. To pray daily dependent on God for our physical needs. A little bit further down in Matthew 6, probably a portion that you're very familiar with regarding anxiety, is the whole idea of not being anxious for your life. And Jesus says further down, we won't have it on the screen, but in verse 25, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. That's your life. What are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? Your body? What are you going to be clothed with? How are you going to be covered? Shelter. He says, don't worry about those things. But he says, here's what I want you to seek first. It's not what the world is chasing after, but he says, seek first God's what? His kingdom, right? Which ironically is the very first thing that Jesus also has us pray in this prayer. Thy name, thy kingdom, and thy will. And then what's the next thing that comes? Daily bread. You see in verse 8, back up in verse 8, he says, don't be like them. Meaning, don't be like all those that have meaningless repetition when they pray. Don't be like those, later on, he says, who anxiously seek, what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, and they're worried about physical needs. He says, don't worry about those things. God takes care of the birds. God takes care of the flowers. Aren't you worth more more than them? Don't worry about these physical needs. But you are to seek first the kingdom of God. It is a perspective that, honestly, a lot of times I don't have. A lot of times I will wake up and the whole world, from my perspective, will be focused on how can I walk today in such a way that all my needs get met. And a lot of times my prayers reflect that too. And I know yours do as well. Because we struggle with the very things Jesus is teaching us how to pray Paul told Timothy, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Pretty basic, physically. In more than one place, the Bible tells us that our physical needs are really pretty simple. Food and covering, meaning clothing and some kind of a shelter. That's pretty basic. And you know, our struggle is that we want to take our physical needs beyond what the Bible says they are. Like we'll say, for example, we'll lump a lot of things into the category and call it physical needs. Like a lot of times you'll hear somebody say, because they've had the experience of alcohol, they'll say, I need a drink. And in their mind, physically, they feel they really need a drink. It is a need. Every bit as real as food and water. But it's because of an experience that they've had. Uh, You'll hear, and this is so common, you'll hear somebody in today's society say, I need sex. And again, it's because, by and large, there's been an experience. You see, these needs 
are lumped into the category of physical and they're held up to be a drive that is just as real or a need that is just as real as food and clothing. And as a result of this drive being so strong and yet there is no moral outlet to have this need met, we step outside the bounds of morality to get the need met. And in our schools, a lot of times, uh, we have given over the whole idea of teaching that we have a choice. So interesting in a pro-choice culture, the sex drive is seen as there's no way to control it. It's, uh, it's simply a, a natural, physical desire. They're going to do it anyway, so let's hand out contraceptives in the school. And anybody that hands out a Bible or tries to teach morality, instead will pull them aside. Such an interesting contradiction. Abstinence is not an option because abstinence, we're told, ignores our natural need for sexual expression. If you read through the Old Testament, you see an interesting tidbit in the book of Leviticus, where we're told that a husband and a wife could not have relations with one another at a point of her monthly cycle because of the ritual impurity that that would cause to go to worship in the temple. And we won't get into all the details of that, but just simply said, there it is. But what that shows, a principle that that shows is, even in the context where the sexual relationship is legitimate, there is a command to control it at a certain point. And that command obviously we have the ability to obey. Now I'm camping on this sexual issue by and large because our culture does. Our, our culture will say, and many of us have bought into it, that the sexual appetite is a need as legitimate as uh, food and water. And when that need's not met, you meet it, however you, it needs to be met. But that little verse in Leviticus, as well as the whole body of Scripture, shows us that no sexuality, as well as many other things that we call needs, are not needs. They are desires, godly desires, legitimate desires, but desires that can and must be controlled. If you know that it is not a need, but it is a godly desire, it's okay to feel that way, but it must be also controlled. If you know that, then there's a whole lot more strength in knowing that the decision is not a decision, well, I don't want to double negative, it, that you can actually do it. If sexuality was a need, every moral single man would die in a week and a half. Godly desire, yes, but if it's exaggerated, it, be, it can become just as much of an idol as an ungodly desire. Well, not only do we have physical needs, but we also have another kind. Look at verse 12. Jesus says that we are to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When it comes to doing the will of God on earth, we are a needy people. When we try it without God, we sin, and we are in need of forgiveness. When we want to do it with God, we are dependent upon him for a couple of things, this verse tells us. For his leading, for his guidance, there, do not lead us into temptation, 
and also his protection, but deliver us from evil. Spiritually, the Bible says we are needy people. In fact, our need is total. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and says that you were dead in your sins and your transgressions. You had nothing to commend yourself to God. Spiritually, you were dead. And unless God meets your spiritual need and pays for your sins somehow, spiritually, you will remain dead. And you will go to hell when you die. Because that is what happens to those who are spiritually dead, who are not born again, that is, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, our true, legitimate, biblical needs, if they're not met, we die. Physically, food, clothing, shelter, if we don't have those things, physically, we die. Spiritually, if we don't have God meeting our needs, we die. Spiritually. God must meet the needs that are physical, the needs that are spiritual. And he has. But our struggle is that we, we put a lot more things other than those basic things as legitimate needs. And we'll call what we desire needs. Jesus taught us to pray for a couple of things, physical and spiritual needs. But we need to be careful about saying, Jesus Christ meets all your needs. Because what happens when he doesn't? Or what happens when somebody in, my, in your life, or maybe you yourself, says, you know what, I know that that sounds real biblical and everything, but I don't feel like Jesus is meeting all my needs. And the problem with that kind of a statement is that needs are defined not by the word of God, but by your desires, albeit godly desires, but just desires and not needs. Sometimes Jesus might desire to change what we're calling needs rather than justify uh, our desires. But what about emotional needs? And this is really why we've included this message in this series. is because it's hard. A lot of times emotionally when we talk about our relationship with each other, we're talking about emotional needs. I need you to make me feel good. I need love from you. I need support from you. I need security from you. I need encouragement from you. Relationally, I need these things from you. And if I don't have them, my needs aren't being met. Well, nobody can desire, uh, deny that this is a universal desire, that the need for love. But you know, biblically, I think you're going to be pretty hard-pressed to show these kind of emotional things as needs. They are desires, they are legitimate, they are godly, but I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find in the Bible where they are needs. Do we need people? Yes, we do. Physically, we need them to feed us, especially when we're young, but even as adults. We need one another physically. And if you think about it, logically, most of the stuff that we do in our lives is dependent physically on other people. The food at the grocery store, the clothes on your back, the car that you drive, those kind of things, other people had to have a hand in that. Spiritually, we need other people, obviously, because somebody had to tell us about Jesus Christ. Faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word of God, and how will they ever come to faith if nobody tells them? So we have that need physically and spiritually, and, and even then we need one another. Like Paul says, for example, he compares us to a body, a literal physical body, and he says that the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Right? The head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. 
I need you. You need me. Not necessarily emotionally, but to do God's will, which is the whole context of this. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. But in regard to emotional needs, we usually feel that we need one another. You say, well, wait a minute, Wayne. I know the Bible commands us to love one another. What about that? The Bible commands that the husband is to love his wife. The Bible commands that the wife is to respect her husband. Doesn't that indicate that we have a need for these things if God commands other people to do them? I want you to notice, even right here in verse 13, of how God always throughout Scripture looks at our relationship to one another. In verse 13, uh, let's see, no, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Notice our relationship to other people here in this. It is one of responsibility, not one of right. And with that, you could simply say that regarding our relationships with one another, God's word always speaks in terms of responsibilities and it never speaks in terms of rights. In other words, I have the responsibility to forgive you when you sin against me. I have the responsibility to forgive you. Okay? But I don't have the right to be forgiven by you. I have the responsibility to love you, but I don't have the right to be loved by you. The wife has the responsibility to respect her husband. The husband does not have the right to be respected. And I think the problem that we come up on a lot of times is we view other people's responsibilities towards us as our rights. And when you aren't doing those things, you're not meeting my needs, and then I can, for some reason, justify becoming so self-focused. Just because God commands you to love me, to wash my feet, doesn't mean that I have a need for these things. Now, I'm not talking about like Peter telling Jesus, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. I'm not talking about the prideful attitude of I don't need you. Okay? What I'm talking about is a, a humility that I will let you serve me. I will let God minister to me through you. But to equate responsibility with right, I think you're going to be pretty hard-pressed when you start getting into some other verses. For example, what Paul told the Philippians, he says, consider others better than yourselves. Now think about that for a second. If you're commanded to consider me better than you, or to consider me more important than you, and you equate responsibility and right, then I have the right to be considered more important than you. You see, it can't equate. If it does, then all of a sudden, we're on a totally different level, biblically. And it's a level that, again, is pretty well self-focused. Cheryl Crow once said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life alone. That's the only true fear I have. Because what else is there but love? You know, her desire is really a desire you and I share as well. It's a godly desire. It's a desire for love from other people, from God, from spouse, from parents. There's nothing wrong with this desire. Don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with a godly desire to be loved. The problem comes in why we desire it and how much and for what reason. Because when we view these things as basic to our needs and we sense that they're not being met, then all of a sudden we get very selfish and demanding. If somebody you love dies, 
your emptiness and your sadness is legitimate. But it's not so much legitimate because you needed them emotionally. It is legitimate because death was never intended to be a part of what we had to deal with as humans. Even Jesus Christ cried, wept, uh, at the death of Lazarus. And Jesus knew that ten minutes later he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But it was the fact that death was there and it causes such pain. The separation that it causes. We were never supposed to have to deal with it. So when you get angry and when you get depressed by the way that somebody treats you or somebody doesn't do something that you need, you need to ask uh, yourself a question. It's this. What is it that you felt you needed from them that they're not giving you? And if you're honest, a lot of times I think it'll come down to selfish desires. Listen for a second at James chapter 4. I know that this is hard. Uh, I think you can trail with me pretty, pretty easily on the physical needs, on the spiritual needs. Those are no-brainers. But emotional needs, that, this is hard. It's very hard. But I think biblically we're pretty hard-pressed to find that we have rights emotionally. Plenty of responsibility, but not rights. Listen to what James says in chapter 4 and see if this doesn't answer a lot of times why we get so frustrated with one another emotionally. James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is, it not, is not the source your pleasures, or literally your lusts, that wage war in your members or in your body? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see, James is saying a lot of times relationally, the reason we have so much problems with one another is because we're looking at each other from the perspective of rights instead of responsibilities. I have a right to have this. I don't get it, I kill. I have a right to have what you have. I don't get it, we quarrel and fight. And even then, he says, you don't have because you do not ask. Okay, so you ask God, but you don't receive because why are you asking? Not because it's God's kingdom, God's will, God's name that's really in your mind, but it's, it's all about you. It's difficult to look at your face in the mirror and to see the reality there. We can say it like this, that when defined by selfish desires, our needs will never be satisfied by God or anyone else. If you are defining your needs as your selfish desires or even legitimate desires that are way exaggerated, never going to be satisfied by God or anyone else. Your lusts, my lusts have no limits. Our desires are always bigger than even God's ability to meet. Edward Welch had a great paragraph I'd like to read to you. Really, listen, pay attention to what he says. He says, he says to look to Christ to meet our perceived psychological needs is to Christianize our lusts. We are, we are asking God to give us what we want so we can feel better about ourselves or so we can have more happiness, not more holiness 
in our lives? Does the scripture say anywhere that we need relationships in order to be filled? Does it say that we have a God-given longing for significance and worth in a meaningless world? No. The scripture indicates that we have a God-given longing for significance, uh, that, we have, that we need God, but we need him as the image that we are to reflect. Isn't that a beautiful idea? Because it's exactly right. We need God in order to know how we are to reflect his image, how we are to live, his name, his will, his kingdom. We need him because we have spiritual needs, and we need him for life itself. The scripture also indicates that we need each other. But we don't need each other in order to fulfill a created emptiness. God has not created us empty emotionally. Instead, we need each other in order to reflect God's glory. You see, it's like what Paul said. We need one another. The hand can't say, I can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Do we need one another? You bet we do. Not so much emotionally as we do to get things done in God's kingdom. His commission to his people has to be carried out corporately. Look at your bulletin for a second. On the back of the message notes at the bottom, I've given you something for further study from where I got this quote, Ed Welch's article called, Who Are We? Needs, Longings, and the Image of God in Man. It's found in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, or you can find it online, and there's the address. Uh, I encourage you, if you've got 10 or 15 minutes sometime and want to find out why it is, like James says, that you're struggling so much relationally, it may be that you need to redefine your needs back to what the Bible says they legitimately are. Last week, remember in Jeremiah 17, we looked at the whole idea of why we turn away from trusting God and instead we'll look to men for our hope. It's because our hearts are deceptively wicked. We, we are not empty love tanks that have to be filled because if we are, then we'll never be filled because our lusts are always bigger than anybody, including God's desire or ability to fill it. Look at the screen, Proverbs 27, where we read, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Sheol and Abaddon are basically the grave. The grave and destruction are never satisfied. In other words, we have people who have died, and you know what? The ground has not said, you know, we're all filled up. But rather, there's room for plenty more. It's the same idea with our eyes, never satisfied. When defined by selfish desires, our needs are never going to be satisfied. Well, we stopped halfway through verse 13 in the Lord's Prayer. Let's finish it. And some of you may have in brackets this last part of the verse uh, with the idea that it may not have been there in the earliest manuscripts. I personally think it was original because uh, it fits the context very well as Jesus ends the prayer the way he began. It says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the very first word there is the word for. In other words, he is explaining why we pray all these things. Why do we pray uh, that God be glorified? Why do we pray for bread, for forgiveness, for guidance, for protection? Why? Because thine is the kingdom. 
See, it's a totally different perspective when you're praying all the things you're praying, even for your legitimate needs, not ultimately for you, but you're praying ultimately for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so I want to ask you a question, or give you a question to ask. And that's this, that instead of approaching each day with the goal of meeting your needs, ask the Lord, how can I glorify you today? Because if God has already promised to meet your needs as a believer, then what should your focus be? What did Jesus say further down in this chapter, right? Seek first, not all the stuff the world chases, but seek first God's kingdom. It's how Jesus begins and ends the prayer, God's kingdom. And it's how he goes further down, it's to be our first thing. So instead of approaching the day with Lord, you, you open your Bible, you began to pray, Lord, uh, here's all the things I need. I need this, uh, I need this, as Steve Martin says, well, I need this, and it just, it just keeps going. And you're holding, really, in reality, a pile of junk that you really don't need. This is what we're asking God for. You know, God, give me a stationary joiner. Well, do I really need a stationary joiner? Well, I think I do, right? Does Brian really need an iPod? Well, and obviously, this is exaggerated, but this is what a lot of times our prayers consist of. Not praying what Jesus said, forgiveness of sin, and basic physical needs. Twelve years ago, there was a guy named Danny Simpson up in Canada. He robbed a bank and stole $6,000. Well, they caught him, and when he was arrested, they put him in jail, and they found the gun which he used to hold the place up, and it was an antique. This gun, a 45 caliber Colt made by the Ross Rifle Company in 1918, was worth up to $100,000. And the guy steals six grand and goes to jail. In other words, the guy already had what he needed. And I thought, what an interesting twist or interesting parallel that is to how many of us so desperately feel like we need something that we're willing to go outside the bounds of law or to go outside the bounds of morality to fulfill what we think is our need when in reality we already had what we needed if you define needs biblically. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, whether then you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So is your life all about your fulfillment? Then you'll never be fulfilled. But if your life is saying, Lord, thank you for meeting my needs, now how can I glorify you today? Through acts of simple obedience. And I tell you what, if you begin to look at your perspective every day that way, then you will begin to live the way God says a believer should live. Not all out for what I can get, but rather, Lord, how can I give you glory today through simple acts of obedience? And then God fills you with immeasurable joy. Let's read together in closing. In fact, let's, why don't we all stand up and read this Psalm 34, verse 8 and 9. It's a great perspective, a great way for us to finish. So let's out loud all read together. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints.
For those who fear him, there is no want. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today and are honestly just convicted by your word. Because so many of us, Lord, really all of us, have far more than we need. That you have met our needs, biblically speaking, both physically and spiritually. You have met them abundantly. And yet our needs list goes on and on and on. I pray that you would change our perspective, Lord, toward one another. To help us to begin to look to one another, not with arms open, as needy, not as having the right to receive from others, but rather, Lord, to have the responsibility to love others and to serve them. And I pray in our perspective towards you, we would come to you not with arms open saying, God, meet all my needs, but rather we would ask, Lord, how can I glorify you today through simple acts of obedience? Lord, we love you and ask that you would begin to help us change our perspective that we might begin to recognize the needs that you have abundantly met. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you.